It's always been interesting as a pastor who's short to follow folks who are tall and <laughs> the adjustment of mics. Yesterday afternoon, I was with some of our folks over at our jail ministry, and a number of the guys who are in that ministry uh, are getting ready to be released within the next month. And they began to share with us some of the anxieties that they have about staying with the Lord and moving with the Lord and staying out of trouble once they get out. And as I listened to the guys, it was interesting to what they were saying. They were talking about, one guy was talking really strongly about the need to stay in the Word and be in the, reading the Scriptures and uh, just make sure you stay reading your Bible. There was another guy who was talking about how important it was to get in church and to get connected to a church family uh, for what you would get out of that. Uh, there was one man that began to share about how he had been under a lot of attack of Satan with discouragement and just felt like he wasn't worth anything and how... It was just so important for him to be there yesterday and to be with the group. And he just made up his mind that even though he didn't feel like being at the Bible study, he was going to be there anyway because he knew he needed the encouragement of being with other uh, believers. And so listening to those guys talk, it, it just sort of reminded me that their struggle, though in a different place from us, is very similar to the same struggle that we've got. And that is that when you're in a place where the Spirit of God is at work and we're just moving with what God's doing, it's easy. But when we get in those places in life, when we're struggling to stay in the flow of the Spirit of God, it becomes something entirely different. We've been looking in recent weeks at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts and how one is filled with the Spirit. But being filled with the Spirit and staying filled with the Spirit is two different things. Come together in a worship service and we experience God's presence through music and through the preaching of His Word, etc. But to walk out of here and go into the rest of life and try to stay in the Spirit's flow, sometimes is an entirely different matter. I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, but I get up in the morning and have a wonderful quiet time with the Lord and just feel like I'm right where God wants me. And then I get into some situation, usually with another person, and uh, I seem to lose it all within 10 minutes of what I feel like I had gained uh, that morning. I don't know if that happens to any of you all, but that's happened to me on numerous occasions. And I'm asking myself the question, what happened? And so what we see in the book of Acts is that in the first chapter and the second chapter, in the first part of the second chapter, the Spirit of God is being poured out on the streets of Pentecost. Thousands of people are coming to know Jesus as their Savior. They are experiencing the power of God through the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they are on fire for the Lord, and they are moving in the Spirit's flow. And literally 3,000 people come to know Jesus as their Savior that day out on those streets. But then the disciples, these new disciples, recognize that this has got to be more than just a moment, more than just a day, and it's got to be bigger than the emotions of that moment. So how do you stay in the Spirit's flow? They are in the Spirit's flow because they've received the outpouring of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, but how do you stay there? And so in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42, we see the deliberate action that they take 
to stay in the Spirit's flow. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn there and look up on the screen. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, because we're going to see here the action that they take, the habits that they develop in order to continue to know the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Begin with verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And notice how Luke here, as the writer, continues to just reinforce this sense of togetherness, this fellowship that he referred to earlier. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, notice that it says in verse 43 that because they were taking that action of following the apostles' teaching, of enjoying and participating in the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers, all came upon all, every soul. Wonders and signs were being done among the apostles. And then go on down, verse 47, it says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the last half of that verse, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So because they continued in some disciplined actions, attitudes, behaviors, God blessed with signs and wonders. People were in awe of what they saw God doing, and people continued to follow Jesus as their Savior. So what happened on the day of Pentecost wasn't just confined to the day of Pentecost. It continues to happen day after day because of what they're doing. And what are they doing? And my sermon outline is in your Bible, so I invite you to follow along, if you will. What are they doing here? First of all, they are living in the flow of truth. They are living in the flow of God's truth. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word devoted there means to apply strength to something, to make it a priority. In other words, what they were doing is as they looked at, as they listened to the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to it. They didn't just didn't say, hey, I'm going to come here and just listen to a little bit of what the apostles have got to teach. The idea was that they applied mental strength to it. They listened carefully to what the apostles were teaching. Then they began to apply it to their lives. They struggled with it. They wrestled with it. They contemplated with it in their minds. They engaged it mentally. Then they engaged it with their behavior and with their attitude so that it sort of sank down and saturated the entirety of who they were. Now, whose teaching was it? It was the apostles' teaching. And why did they pay attention to the apostles' teaching? Because they're treating the apostles' teaching as it's unique, like it is superior, and it is authoritative. Now, there was a whole lot of teaching flowing around the Roman Empire in those days. You had your choice. If you wanted to go with Egypt, you could go with religious teaching coming out of Egypt. If you wanted to go with the mystery religions, then you could pick any one you wanted to. The newest thing that was emerging on the scene was emperor worship. And so if you wanted to be good in with the emperor in the Roman Empire, you followed his teaching. 
But these folks chose to choose the apostles' teaching, the early leaders in the church, as being the sole authority as above all the other teachings that were out there. And why did they do that? Because we live in a similar day to day. I mean, the, the, the idea that's out there all the time today is that everything out there is on equal footing. The big issue is if you just choose to be committed to whatever you believe, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're committed to whatever you believe. But you see, those folks had as, mu- as many different teachings flowing around them as we do today, if not more, but they were choosing to say the apostles' teaching is, takes priority over every other teaching that's out there. It has more authority, it is superior, and it alone is truth. Now, why do they do that? Because we've got to answer the same question. Why would we say that the teachings of the Word of God are different from, superior to, authoritative, above all the other philosophies, religions, and ideas that are out there? This is the reason they paid close attention to the apostles' teaching. Number one, it had absolutely nothing to do with the personalities of the apostles. It wasn't because they sat back and said, man, Peter is so, looks so good and he sounds so good and John, he's got it going on, et cetera, et cetera, and that's the reason we're paying attention to them. It had nothing to do with their looks, had nothing to do with their ability to articulate what they were saying. They paid attention to the apostles' teaching for basically one reason. I want you to write this down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the apostles were teaching was what Jesus had taught. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, His resurrection was God's confirmation that everything He had said was truth. If Jesus had walked around lying, conjuring up stuff, basically being a religious lunatic, God would not have raised him from the dead. Why would God raise a lunatic from the dead? Why would he raise somebody who was spreading falsehood about him? When God raised his son from the dead, he was confirming that who Jesus said he was, was truth. He was the only son of God. And what Jesus had said was truth, and truth alone. So that when the, these folks looked at the apostles and they recognized and heard that what the apostles was te- teaching was coming from Jesus and was from Jesus' words and they were teaching with Jesus' authority, they said Jesus was raised from the dead and because He was raised from the dead, what they are teaching has authority, is superior, and we should listen to it. And folks, the reason that the Word of God is authoritative, the reason that what is taught in the Word of God has authority is because it is all centered in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They understood that the resurrection was a historical fact. It was not a hypothesis. It was not something that you hoped for. It was a historical fact. They knew that you could go to a tomb in Jerusalem where his physical body had been laid, confirmation that he was dead, he had risen from the dead. There were multiple eyewitnesses spread over a 40-day period of time that he had risen from the dead and that the tomb was empty. 
So a historical fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, that was the confirmation to them that we need to pay attention to what the apostles are teaching because they are teaching what Jesus had taught. Now they had an appetite to learn their teaching. Why do they have that appetite? Jesus had said, if you know the truth, the truth is going to do what? Set you free. Now, the truth of God's Word sets us free in two ways. Number one, it sets us free from the bondage that we are in. Whether it's to sin, shame, guilt, bad thinking, you name it, it sets us free. But it doesn't just set us free from the negative. It sets us free to the positive. It sets us free to know truth about Him and to live out truth about Him. So getting free and the act act of truth setting me free is just the first step. The second step, the ongoing step, is to start living in the freedom and walking in the freedom. So they had this appetite because they wanted to know truth, to get free, and to walk and to live in the freedom that he had. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 15, in verse 1, If you abide in my words, then you truly are my disciples. Notice the use of the verb there, if you abide in my words. Now, abiding in his word is more than just saying, I read the Bible today. Abiding in his word is choosing to live under the authority of his word. It's choosing to live out in my life what he is showing me and teaching me. Mark Batterson, in his book Primal, says the Bible is the place where God bears his soul. The Bible is the place where God bears his soul. And when you and I pick up this book and we begin to read the Bible and study the Bible and ask God through the Holy Spirit to teach us his word, God is bearing his soul to us. He is showing us who he is and what he's got for us. The book of Hebrews says that the word of God is alive, it is active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So when you pick this word up and you and I begin to engage it and it begins to engage us, this is alive. It is active. And it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And that means it's going to cut us sometimes. And when it cuts us with conviction, that's not a whole lot of fun. But anytime God cuts us, it's because he's trying to set us free from something. Anytime God cuts us, it's trying to cut away something that we need to have cut out of our lives anyway. Now, it says it's alive and inactive. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, but I've had times that I've sat down and read the Bible. And, I, and to be honest with you, I've gotten absolutely nothing out of it. It just sort of one ear and out the other. And it just, you know, my mind started wondering the whole bit, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's wrong when that happens? Because it happens to all of us. Let me tell you when you go through that, several things. Number one, just make sure you're trying to focus. Because sometimes we just got so much going on in our minds, it's hard to focus. This is supposed to be alive. So how do I engage it if it's alive? Number one, ask the Holy Spirit of God to make it come alive to you. That's one of the ministries of the Spirit is to engage us with the Word and to take the Word and for its life to be breathed into us. So ask for that work of the Spirit and open our minds and say, God, would you teach me? Would you show me? Would you make the Word alive? Secondly, Lord, would you keep Satan 
from making this dead to me. Because the Bible says Satan tries to come right along and snatch it away from us. And one of the ways he tries to snatch it away from us is to take truth away from us as we are engaging it. The other third, what I want to encourage you to do is this. When you engage the Word of God, realize that the truth that God teaches you right now in this moment may not be the truth that you feel like you need in this moment. But God knows what's coming in the next moment and moments 10 hours from now and 12 hours from now and two weeks from now, etc. And God is often preparing us for what's coming that we don't know is coming. But He's getting us ready for it. Now, Notice the next thing. It says, they continued in the apostles' teaching, engaging the Word and letting the Word engage them. Secondly, it says that they continued in the fellowship and the breaking of bread. The word fellowship there is the Greek word koinonia. Now, I've called it in your sermon outline, godly friendship. Here's the challenge with trying to talk with you about fellowship here at koinonia. We don't really have a concept in English and Western culture that matches this word in the Greek culture and in the ancient culture of that day. So I'm going to have to use several different descriptions to try to get at what this idea of koinonia is. First of all, the word in its root means to be a partner with someone or a sharer with someone. So the idea of fellowship is not like we tend to use it, that you walk up, shake somebody's hand, say, hi, how are you doing today, engage in small talk, and go away. It's rather the idea that you share fully and completely with someone, you enter into a partnership with somebody. A sense of equality, being together, and sharing a lot together. Now, you will notice that it says that they continued in the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. And it uses the term breaking of bread elsewhere in this passage. Now, what is the significance of breaking bread? Because we tend to throw that idea around, you know, we're going to go to somebody's house and break bread or whatever, and, you know, basically, you know, somebody's going to throw a slice of bread at you or whatever. We don't, we just sort of use that term. But it was very significant in those days. First of all, in the ancient world out of which this, the book of Acts emerges here, bread was the stable at every meal. If you went to a meal, you could be assured that bread was going to be put on the table. Now, how did the bread get there? The bread did not get there the way bread gets on our tables. Most of us do well. We go to the grocery store, and we buy a loaf of sliced bread, and we eat it, and we don't think much about it. But in that day and age, you didn't go and buy a loaf of sliced bread. In many cases, you went to your backyard where you were growing wheat and you had to break off the wheat, ground the wheat, crush the wheat, kneel the wheat, and make it into bread. If you were lucky, maybe you could go to the market and buy the ground crushed wheat. But getting bread to the table was a task. Grinding it up, getting it into that place where it was in the the dough mixture, then baking it. So when you saw a loaf of bread put out on a table, they just didn't get it on a table. You had to work and labor to get it on that table. And so bread wasn't just a stable. It was considered very precious. In fact, in Arab culture of that day, if an Arab was walking down the street and they saw a piece of bread laying out in the road, they would carefully pick the bread up, 
place it on their forehead because it was considered sacred. And then they would take the bread and place it either into a crevice in a wall or into a cleft in a rock as a way of preserving it and making sure it couldn't get back and somebody walk all over it again. That's how important bread was in their culture. Bread was also considered a gift from God. Now, I'm sharing all this with you because if you went to somebody's table in those days and you sat down and they put out bread in front of you at the table, the fact that they would put the bread out in front of you was a powerful statement of them saying to you, you were welcomed at this house, you were welcomed at this table, and we're going to put bread in front of you to share, to eat, and this bread that you're going to be eating, we have worked our heads off to get it here. This just didn't happen. We worked our heads off to get this bread to the table. So we are seriously trying to tell you that you are welcomed here and that you're a participant and we consider this bread a gift from God and we are sharing the gift of God with you. So when he talks here about them breaking bread from house to house, he's not just saying they walked around and had nice meals with each other. He's saying that when they got really involved with each other, they went to each other's houses and they were saying when they put the bread on the table, hey, we're connected to you and you're connected to us. You're welcomed here. You participate with us. You're part of us. And we're going to take what we've been working at all day long and share it with you. We're going to take what we understand to be a gift from God and we're going to share that gift with you. Now, how do we get at this koinonia? Let me give you three basic ideas. Koinonia starts with initiative. Initiative. Somebody has got to move to somebody else and extend a hand and a life of friendship to the other person. There has to be initiative. And most of the time when koinonia doesn't happen, it doesn't happen because we don't take initiative. What you see in the book of Acts is in the power of the Spirit, when the Spirit begins to fill them, they are taking initiative to go to each other. Come to my house. I'm opening my house to you. Come to my table and eat with me. Come and have some bread at my place. Let's talk. Let's share. Let's get to know each other and what you're struggling with. Notice it says they sold their possessions and they helped each other. The idea was that one person was down, the other person would come along and help them up so that nobody was out there on their own by themselves, suffering by themselves. They were taking the initiative to go to one another. Now, what you and I tend to struggle with in this initiative is that most of us have got a circle of friends that we're already tight with. Maybe two people, three people, five people. But once we get that circle established, we tend to just move in that circle and not move out of that circle. But koinonia happens when I break the circle and reach out and bring somebody else into the circle. But that takes initiative to do that. It doesn't just happen. Most churches that are not growing are not growing because nobody's taking initiative. And, and I've heard this through the years as a pastor. Well, we're a friendly church, which usually means we're friendly with each other. But you see, what's friendly to us, because we already know the folks, may not be friendly to somebody else. Because if I walk into a group and everybody's in their little circle having fun, but they won't let me in, yeah, they're friendly and fun in their circle. But I'm standing outside the circle saying, nobody's letting me into the circle. So I don't look too friendly to me. Yeah, maybe friendly in the circle, but it's surely not friendly outside the circle. 
So someone's got to take the initiative to, to break the circle open and to reach out to the person and to say, hey, we're going to take some initiative. We want you to come and imitate where this really gets challenging. It really gets challenging when the person who needs to be brought into the circle is very different from the people who are already in the circle. It's not too hard to let people into the circle that think like us, look like us, talk like us, act like us. But when we've got to bring somebody into the circle that does not look like us, talk like us, think like us, and may challenge us in the circle a little bit, make us feel a little uncomfortable, then we really struggle with this koinonia piece. And when you get later on into the book of Acts, you start seeing where the early church really begins to struggle with it. But they were taking the initiative. Secondly, they were consistent. They were going the distance with each other. And that involves sacrifice, and that involves inconvenience. Putting that bread on the table involves some sacrifice because you had to spend some money to get it there. And it was inconvenient. Putting all that dough together, baking it, etc., was tough. Third aspect of koinonia, serving together. Serving together. We try to provide a lot of mission opportunities here. They're in your bulletin today, uh, and we'll talk about them coming up with the mission trip we're going to do this summer uh, to Hampton Roads. Uh, We've got a team going to Puerto Rico. We take groups into Roanoke uh, to work in uh, food pantry work, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the reasons we do this is, not, is, yes, it's for outreach and spread the gospel always. But one of the reasons is so that we can get together and having to lean on each other. Because when you get out there serving Jesus, one person's good at one thing, another person's good at something else. But if you don't lean on each other, you can't get the job done. And so that is the, the idea here of serving together. I want to share one story before I move to the final aspect of what they were doing. I got my first really big lesson in Koinonia when I was in, I guess it was the eighth grade. My parents had separated, and uh, we had joined Bonnier Baptist Church in Richmond. And my mother was a single parent. And back in the 70s, to be a single parent carried some shame with it. And we walked into a church that was a higher socioeconomic class than we were, pretty much all married couples. It was a fairly young church at that time. And so we were a little worried about how we were going to fit into the life of this church. And back in those days, if you came from a, a single-parent family, you were, it, they were referred to them as broken homes. And so uh, the idea was almost like your home's broken, so you've got to be broken because you're coming from a broken home. And so as a teenager, I was a little struggling a bit with that. And we went into that church, and we joined and we got active. And about a year to year and a half after we joined there, my mother went to the doctor and uh, was told on a Friday afternoon she had a tumor, and he needed to operate literally the next day on Saturday. And so I remember coming home from school that afternoon, and mother set my sister and I down, and she said, uh, your aunt and uncle are coming to take care of you for the weekend. I'm going into the hospital tonight. I'm going to have surgery tomorrow afternoon. And I'll probably be in the hospital for several days. And uh, the word began to circulate through our home church, through Bonaire, uh, that mother was in the hospital and was having surgery. And I remember on Saturday and on Sunday and on Monday, the telephone in our house was just ringing constantly with people from the church. Can you tell me what's going on? How can you help out? By Sunday afternoon, we were starting to wonder how we were going to put all the food, because the refrigerator was already packed with food people were bringing in. And we were trying to figure out, what are we going to do with all this food? 
And between the telephone calls and the food and then the visit started, that was just a huge statement to me of this is what koinonia looks like and feels like. And it really made a statement to us because we didn't fit the demographic of the church and that was irrelevant to the people. They just loved us as we were and and really got us through a difficult time. And that is the, the idea of koinonia. And I want to share one word with you guys. Several weeks ago over Christmas, we did a food drive here for a family in Rocky Mount that the dad's life was suddenly taken and the mom was incarcerated and four kids at grades 6 through 1st grade uh, were taken in by the grandmother literally overnight and she was trying to figure out how she's going to feed them and I came to you and said, hey, we need to help these folks out and y'all gave so much food um, that we had to, we were going to take it in a vehicle, we had to end up putting it in our church bus to get it over to the house. Somebody in our church placed on my desk a jar filled with coins and asked that I just take the jar over there to the family. Well, Helen and I went over there last Sunday afternoon and visited with that family. And that grandmother told me, she said, I just don't know what we would have done had it not been for your church. She said, the food has just been a godsend. She says, because we're not able right now, I haven't been able to tap into any aid. And she says, so we've been feeding the family what you all gave. And she said, when I got the jar of coins, she said, I started crying because that's how I'm doing my laundry. And she says, you just will not believe what an answer to prayer that has been. Uh, we got her some blow-up mattresses because they didn't have enough bedding in the, the small apartment there. And she said, we needed it. So we went out and got some blow-up mattresses so that the kids would have a place to sleep. And I just want to say to you, that is an expression of koinonia, what you all did for people you don't even know and haven't met yet. And I just want to commend you for that because God has used you to help people get through a crisis and we're going to continue to, to try to find ways to help them as they transition. Koinonia. Now, the final thing it says, they gave themselves to prayer. Prayer is the nerve that moves the muscle of God. If you hold your finger in Acts and turn over to Matthew chapter 6, I want to show you something about prayer. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. We call this the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer. But what I want you to see when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray is I want you to see as I'm going to read this prayer and I'm going to emphasize it every time I hit one of these, the first person plural, plural pronouns. We're not careful. We interpret this prayer like they're first-person singular pronouns. But notice how many plural pronouns he uses. Pray then like this, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. 
Isn't it fascinating that when the disciples said, Lord, would you teach us to pray, that he taught them a prayer with so many plural pronouns? Our Father. Not my Father. Our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. They're not asking God just to give me daily bread. It's to give us, as your followers, daily bread. Which means if one brother gets the bread and the other sister doesn't have it, what do you do? You share the bread with them. Because it's our bread, not my bread. Forgive us our debts. We're repenting and asking for forgiveness together. And we are extending forgiveness together. Because more than we realize it, we tend to sin in packs. We tend to hold unforgiveness in packs. Have you ever noticed you ticked off? What do we do? We've got to share the ticked office with other people. We've got to share our unforgiveness with somebody else so together we can hold a grudge because it's more fun to hold a grudge together than it is to hold it just by yourself. So he's teaching us here that when you pray, pray together. Repent together. Ask God to keep us out of temptation together. Ask God to give us the bread together and recognize when we open the prayer, Our Father, we are in this together. When it says here that they continued in prayers, it is the idea that they were praying together and that they were praying for one another. The Bible says that if two of you shall agree together on earth as touching anything, it shall be done of them my Father, which is in heaven. Notice what Jesus is teaching us there. Pray together. Why is that so important? When we pray together, we mix faith. And where my faith may not be strong enough in and of itself, the faith of other believers coupled with mine creates the faith that's needed to get an answer from God. So pray together. Now, when you go into the book of Acts, first part of chapter 3, Everything I just talked about plays out. Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So they're going up there together in Cornelia to do what? To pray together, pray with each other, pray for each other. And on the way up there, they encounter this lame man. And he's begging them for some coins, for some money, to get them through. So what do they do when they see the lame man? They don't get overwhelmed. They don't get blown away. They look at him, and out of their knowledge of the Word of God, and out of being together and being in prayer, they look at this guy, and they say to him, we don't have silver and gold, but let me tell you what we do have. We have Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And what they're doing there is they're bringing the lame man into their koinonia, into their fellowship. And I love the way they do it. They reach over there. And this guy has never walked in his life. They reach over there, and he begins to feel strength, but they pick him up. Why do they pick the guy up? Because that man's faith needs some help. If you've never walked before, you need someone to sort of help you get the feel of what it means to stand up. And as that man is being pulled up by them, they begin, he begins to feel the power of God healing him and moving through him. And then when they get into the temple area, 
It says, verse 11, that he, this lame man, clung to Peter and John. Now he's beginning to feel strength in his legs for the first time. He's walking in faith for the first time. So he clings to Peter and John. But you see, the part of the reason he's clinging to Peter and John, I believe, is he's into Koinonia there. He's not experiencing the power of God by himself. He's experiencing it with Peter, with John, and him together. Now, that guy never would have been healed had those guys not gone together. He wouldn't have been healed had they not brought him into their circle. But because they brought him into the circle, because they prayed over him, because they quoted God's word to him in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, that healing took place. And folks, I really believe if we will practice what they're talking about here, if we will traffic in the word of God, if we will come together in that fellowship, that koinonia, and invite others into it with us. And if we will pray one with another and for each other and pray together, then I think we're going to see a release of the power of God among us. I love the way it describes the early church. Signs and wonders, God's power flowing everywhere. And you know, we have this bad tendency to look at that and say, isn't that great? Wish we could have it now, but there's just no way it can happen now. And we talk ourselves out of the power of God before it ever starts. We just go back to Acts chapter 2 and follow the pattern here. We'll be surprised at what God is ready and willing to do. Lord, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning that God, you are calling us, you are inviting us into your word to follow, Lord, your teaching. You're calling us and inviting us into that koinonia, into that fellowship of being connected to one another, each other. But we, Lord, we've got to take the initiative to reach out to each other. And then finally, Lord, you are calling us to pray with each other and to pray for each other. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, would you just discipline us to do that? Would you just lead us and, and stay on us to do that? And then, God, we want to say to you that we are looking to you as we do that for God's signs of your activity all around us. For your power, Lord, to be poured out among us. And, God, I pray that you would help us as we go to folks, Lord, who are hurting and who are lonely just like this family, Lord. And we don't just say to them, hey, we're going to give you some food and we'll go on our way. We're here to say, hey, we're going to join you in the journey of life. We're going to bring you in to our circle and love you in Jesus' name.